0: So, this is what it takes to make your will break. Open you up like a rose. So, this brings that soul kiss dripping
1: like dew. You're listening to After the Encore, the music podcast where we explore what happens after the music fades, what happens after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Sean. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of talking to Robert Burke Warren. We're talking about his music career as well as his latest book, Cash on Cash. A little bit about Robert Burke Warren. He's a writer, performer, and musician. His work has appeared in Salon, The Weeklings, Akashic Books, Texas Music, Brooklyn Parent, Woodstock Times, Longform Vulture, Pace, The Rumpus, The Goodman Project, Bitter Southerner, Chronogram, and the DiCapo Anthology, the show I'll never forget. As a songwriter, he's released seven CDs, two is Robert Burke Warren, five is Uncle Rock, His work also appears on albums by Roseanne Cash and rockabilly queen Wanda Jackson. Uh, A little bit about him as well. In the mid-90s, he performed as Buddy Holly in the Weston musical Buddy, the Buddy Holly story. Prior to that, he traveled the world as a bass player where he, yes, he played bass for RuPaul's band, the Wee Wee Pole. Uh, Yeah, we get into that. Don't worry. Robert Burke Warren or RBW, is a fascinating, fascinating man. I had an utter blast getting to know him. We talk about his career, we talk about his music, his writing, his performing, and his experience writing the book about Johnny Cash, Cash on Cash. So without further ado, my episode with RBW is right up after this.
0: So then Makes your blood flow deep down below Like when we met years ago You say sweetness and grace a familiar face
2: But part
0: of you says that's not so And only when the mirror breaks does it show what's true When more than one reflection looks back at you And when I'm a stranger to you I love what we do When I'm a stranger to you I love what we do When I'm a stranger to you I love what we do.
1: You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I am here with Robert Burke Warren. I am very excited to dig into this episode because I think there is so much goodness to find in your history, in the book Cash on Cash... There's so much like I was talking to you before we even started about some of the chills you gave me. I was listening to your music. There's so much goodness here that uh, I am excited for the listeners to be aware of. But before we get into any of that, Robert, how are you doing today?
2: I'm good. I'm really good, especially after that intro. I'm very good. (laughs) I I really appreciate it. Of course,
1: of course. So I, you're on the show. What's interesting for me is when we have artists on the show to discuss their background in music and to do a deep dive. uh, It's always about your early life, career, maybe something that's current uh, that you're that you've been working on or just finished, and then what's on the horizon, and. You are in a unique position to me, at least on this show, because not only are you a musician and an artist who's written these fantastic songs and pieces that we're going to get into, but you also wrote this incredible book, Cash on Cash, about the man in black, Johnny Cash, so many interviews he's given over the years, and just understanding him as an individual and him as an artist. So It's interesting because I'm getting to talk to you as an artist, and then you were also in the frame of mind where you were breaking down what it means to be an artist of Johnny Cash's level. So there's so much, so many interesting uh, perspectives we're going to get into. And before all of that here on, after the encore, I do like to, to start out by just sort of level setting the conversation for us. So Robert, I want to ask you, what does music mean to you?
2: Oh, it's the highest form of mm-hmm. communication for, to me. That's uh you know, I, um, I uh, I'm a I'm a father. I became a father in 1998, and uh, and then shortly thereafter, I started working with children. And in working with children, um, as a teacher's assistant in a preschool, which is a whole story how I got there in mm-hmm. and of itself. But um, but I was around lots of children, and uh, that were preschoolers, which is age two to four. And that's when I learned that uh, that small humans humans. Um, you know, when, when babies come out, um, they uh, they sing. They they are they're, they're much more apt to sing than speak. And that I think the the uh, the data, the theories of of F human evolution, are that humans were essentially singing singing before they spoke. And um, and one of the reasons children are so loud is because they're they're built. We're all built to sing very loud when we are born. Humans are wired to sing loud, and uh, and then learning how to speak is a is a cultural thing. Um, you know the how how to how to modulate your voice and how to form words. It's a different part, and language is in a different part of the brain than music. And in my life, um, music has. Uh, it has it has been a one of the reasons I became a musician? One of the reasons is that music is a it communicates more more fully. I mean, I'm a word guy too. Obviously, um, I write books, and uh, I'm a writer. But um, the uh, the level of of the, or should, I should say the depth of communication that I've both received and given through music is has gone deeper than anything else and i just i just think music is um i mean it is a a cliche to say it is the universal language but um it is kind of a a superpower once you i I, you know i teach music now i teach um, both kids and adults um all ages um guitar and bass and ukulele and i tell them in the beginning that you know that you're you're once you master this form of communication, this is this can enrich your life in ways that that I can't even really yeah. explain, you know, or gauge. It's it's a it's just a, it's a superior form of communication, really. That's what it means to me.
1: Thank you for sharing that. It is, you know, I just got back from uh, a trip to Colorado not too long ago, and one of the things that I absolutely enjoy and love about being in Colorado is the connection to nature, being out, getting to hike, getting to breathe in the fresh air. And there's this, there's this innate aspect in part in me that feels almost unlocked. Like I'm tapping into something that I am, that I have for years and years have been wired to seek out this connection with nature. And I feel in the same way when I'm communing with music, when i have this experience where i'm listening to music participate actively participating in music it 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 is that same desire and pull pull that i feel when i'm hiking in the mountains and 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 being outside and so it's it's fascinating to me that you talked about it is something that humans are wired to do because i, I feel... I feel like we are often striving to connect with that which we were originally wired to interact with. And so it's not lost on me those moments and that feeling where I'm getting pulled in that direction. I I love that perspective.
2: Yeah, it's um it, it the um it it's deeply connected to, to nature and and uh and and again both both the the experience of the natural world and then uh, the experience of of music—they both, they both go to, to very deep, very deep parts of of, of the brain. And if you want to look at it physiologically, but um, I mean, they go very deep. And um, and you know, they evoke music in particular. It can evoke memory and and uh, can change mood. And um, so, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I hear you. Yeah, there's a, there's a connection there between the natural world and. And music, you know, I, I, it's another thing is If I'm teaching guitar, I'm like, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to especially if it's a y- very young student I'm like, you know, you're holding a piece of, of wood. This is an organic yeah. thing that you're holding. It's a, it's a it's got life inside exactly. it. and um, And you know, my my goal is to is to teach them how to bring the life yeah. out of it and um, It's very satisfying when they do, you know, it's it's when it works with a student, it's very, very satisfying indeed. But, um, but yeah, I hear you. Natural world, I'm a big fan.
1: I want to. Man, you just said something that just is going to stick with me forever. Like no doubt about it. You talked about holding the guitar. You're holding an organic instrument, or it, this is a living thing. It has life inside of it right? You're connecting with nature in this moment and your job is to then bring life out of it. Like, oh my God, like that's the takeaway folks. That is the takeaway right there. (laughs) (laughs) Write it down, put it on an inspirational poster. It's not
2: just, it's not, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's not an, it's not, I mean, it doesn't do anything by itself. That's for sure. But 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 it needs it needs a human the human touch to to bring the music out of it. But yeah, it is a it's a living thing. It's just it's um, I mean I know they make sure, they make sure. Instruments yeah, yeah graphite. Right. I know that, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but um, no. not to diminish graphite by any stretch. But but uh, but you know it's a uh, once you look at it in a certain way, you know, it, it's a fellow organic thing. And um, and I was just talking to somebody about going to the Nazareth the, the guitar the martin guitar factory in nazareth pennsylvania and uh that that was an incredible experience yeah. because i have a martin guitar and um i took it there i, I went there to see sure. the, the tour to see them make the guitars which i i you know anybody that is within 200 miles of nazareth pennsylvania um you you should go to the martin guitar factory and just to to walk around and see these people build these amazing works of art really and um but uh yeah i took my guitar there because um when you buy a martin guitar it has a a lifetime guarantee so if anything happens to it you send it back to the factory and they will repair it for free and so um so that's why I took my guitar there. But uh, but anyway, but yeah, that was like a whole room full of just like this the the smell of it, the the wood, and the and the the hum of the machinery, and this just to go along and see this crew of people making these incredible instruments was was quite a moving. It was much more moving experience than I than I thought it was going to be. Sure, I knew it was going to be cool, but it, it was deeply deeply moving. And uh, so, anyway, <laughs> uh, but I digress. Yeah. But, but yeah, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a a living thing. You're, you're making life when you're making music.
1: Let's speaking of life, let's wind the clock back a bit to early days in your life. And I want to know what was your first experience interacting with music? What made you want to pick up the guitar or any instrument for the very first time way, not too far, not way, way, way back, but just way back. (laughs)
2: Well, I grew up around music. My mom was a big, was and is a big music fan, and uh, and uh, she was a single mom. And my, my father was around until I was seven, and he was a musician. And one of my last memory, no, my last memory of him is him playing guitar at my seventh birthday wow. party. He was a self-taught musician, guitar player, and um, a, you know, apparently had uh, was a natural. And um, but my but my mother. Uh, who raised my brother and me um, was um, just a big fan and she had, you know, just played her LPs quite a lot. Um, And so it was always around radio was always on. I listened to the radio all the time as a kid. Um, And this was in the golden age of what I consider the golden age of, of uh, AM radio in, you know, in, in the top 40, but it was, it was all pre, um, like the k uh, the ktel records the ktel lps which you can still buy at yard sales and stuff um the playlists on these stations w- w- were incredibly diverse um it was you would have uh i don't know the ohio players and then you would have followed up by uh poco po- followed up by these pop bands you know and and it was very Country Joe and the Fish, you know, or um, Doctor Hook and the Medicine Show, rather, and uh, it, it was just a very diverse time to listen to the two.
1: And what time? What time? What time period was this?
2: Well, I was, uh, this is the, the early '70s, is where I really remember gotcha. late '60s, early '70s, um, and uh, before the real stratification and the and the Balkas, balkanization of the of the radio stations you know a a, a a so-called rock station or a so-called top 40 station would play a wild wildly diverse uh you know selection of of songs um and uh that kind of changed in the uh with fm actually when fm came in and then you'd have <laughs> all rock all the time or you'd have like but anyway the first time i remember i, I wanting to I wanted to pick up a guitar and, and become a musician for a long time, but I didn't have the patience. Um, and then my friend Todd was uh, was instrumental in that, in that he, uh, he picked up a guitar when we were, like, 12, and he really devoted himself to it. And he may have been 11, now that I think about it, but, um, you know, he went to lessons, he learned how to read music, and he was way into it. And um, the... Uh, I saw I, I would pick up a yeah. guitar and I would make noise, and I really was uh, there, but, and, and he would and, you know try and teach me a chord, and i just I couldn't yeah I, I wasn't ready and um, and then I saw a band, a cover band <laughs> called Semaphore at play at a party and um and they were kids. And they were they were rich kids actually because they had like Les Pauls (laughs) and a Ledwood drum set and Marshall amps and everything. They were like 14 years old, 15 years old, and um, but they were this. They, I wish I I wish I could say whether or not for sure they were as good as I remember. (laughs) They might not have been. But at the time, at the time I was I was 13, and what I what I was really astounded by. Other than just the magnificent noise, this live band—you know, oh my God—it's a live band, and they're right. kids. They're just a little older than me. Um, it was the girls? The girls were so into it, and I was like, oh, I want, right? I want that—that that attention they were—they were—that they were getting from these girls. It was like un- yeah. unlike anything I had ever seen. And um, you know, uh, so <laughs> the next day. i went to my mom and i was like i want to learn how to play bass and i I was just drawn to the bass uh, and um and i thought everyone heard the bass lines in the albums i was like don't you hear the bass line there it's really cool bass line in that beatles album. my mom had beatles albums and she had the soundtrack to hair the soundtrack to jesus christ superstar she had the mamas and the papas she had janice joplin's pearl and just she had really good taste and um uh so I heard the bass, and I was like, I want to learn how to play that instrument, and that's how I started. And then I went and I went to Todd with this bass, and I was like, you know, help me out. And he was really, um, he he was it was his relate his patience with me was uh, was crucial. That I wanted to join a band, and they said, you have to learn the first two Led Zeppelin albums <laughs> complete if you want to join our band.
1: And this was back in 1979. At this point, right?
2: This would have been 78, 79. Yeah, exactly. And um, and yeah. And so Todd helped me woodshed and helped me. He had already figured out how to how, how to learn by gotcha. ear from from an album. And uh, and then finally, I was able to do it. And when I when I started, I devoted myself to it, and I played bass incessantly for like two years and um i joined that band i got in that band they it was a total bluff <laughs> they didn't really know all those songs. but now you did <laughs> it was a bluff i showed up i mean they sure, knew like a yeah, yeah. you know, whole lot of love and some like right. some of the, the some of the easier ones but they didn't know uh <laughs> the deep know, cuts they, of the album. they didn't know yeah. <laughs> ramble on they didn't know ramble on and they didn't know i well, wish another one they didn't know And they didn't know good times, bad times. They just knew like the really the the simpler songs. Anyway, but yeah, so that was the beginning, and I was just the bass player until I was about 25 years old. I was just I was the bass player in the band, and um, that was. And I started playing in clubs pretty quickly. In '82, I started playing in clubs when I was 17. In Atlanta, I was in a new wave band (laughs) called The Latest, and uh, it was a power trio, and we got into the clubs. They let us, you know, open up for. These the new wave scene in Atlanta was pretty yeah was pretty robust and uh and I you know I have referred to it as the new the new wave queer underground because it was a a wonderful hodgepodge of theater kids yeah. and kind of latchkey kids and kids from kids from broken homes and um queer kids and punk rockers and we were all like kind of in this one Click that was um yeah. kind of looked out for each other and you know, there were some elders and when i say elders i mean sure. kids wow. who were like 22 yeah. or 23 you know and um and it, it coalesced around the rocky horror picture show which was uh, used to play at uh, a repertory cinema in my neighborhood and that's where i that's where i first felt like i was this was this was uh, uh, it's a vivid memory of walking into the rocky horror picture show and todd yeah Todd played Riffraff in the uh, shadow the shadow cast, and uh, that was a seminal time for me. And uh, and then Todd and I Ooh. formed a band with RuPaul, who was an Atla- who was an Atlanta celebrity at that time. He had, uh, he was in a, he sure. was go go dancing. He was the go go dancer for this band called the Now Explosion. He performed with them a lot, and then he wanted to form his own band. And Todd had been. Yeah. Going out with a fake ID to the cl- to the clubs, and met RuPaul and came to me and said, "This guy RuPaul." I was <laughs> like, "What? What's his name?" That's not his. That's not his. Right. It's not his real name. I like, "Yeah, that that is his real yeah. name, and and it is his real name." Um, but yeah, this guy RuPaul. He's like, uh, I guess Ru at that time was sure. twenty, and Todd and I were. He may have been twenty-one. And Todd and I were seventeen, and um, and RuPaul came over one day, and we formed a band called Wee Wee Pole, and that band became yeah. instantly popular. Um, and our song, our songs were, if you dig around on YouTube, you can find there's some. I made a playlist on my own YouTube channel. There's amazingly there was this one main guy named Nelson Sullivan, but other guy, other. Videographers of the uh, around that time with these kind of primitive by today's standards video cameras. Oh wow! There's lots of video, an incredible amount of video. Yeah. For I'll, I'll send you some links, but it's an um, incredible amount of video. I mean, if you search RuPaul, uh,
1: yep, Wee Willie. I just did, W-E-E- and there's a ton. W e e
2: p o l e. There's a ton, and um, of varying degrees of quality. But um, but also we we did record. We recorded uh, a demo. I think we recorded three songs, which um, have never been re-released. Oh well, they, RuPaul put them on the B side of an EP that he okay. did sometime in the '80s and uh, called "Sex," called "Sex Freak." But uh, you do have to dig around to find that. But, um, but anyway, we 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 toured to New York, and um, we had some amazing gigs in New York at Danceteria and the Pyramid Club, and that would have been '80 late 83 early 84 and then uh, yeah so that was that was that was a real eye-opener for me I fell in love with New York City t- at that time and um, and then I moved to Athens Georgia for most of 1984 I quit Wee Wee pull and I played in a band called Go Van Go, and that was my first time uh, sort of independent living independently and um, I lived there for a year and that was a great experience sort of for the first time like i got a i got a job um had very low overhead because it was georgia 1984 was incredibly incredibly cheap to live i tell my son you know actually his mom and i we both tell him stories of how (laughs) although of how cheap it was and it but but it's 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 kind of we try not to anymore because it's so incredibly expensive it's like that the the you know because he doesn't need to hear that anymore (laughs) It was like you know he's he's living he's doing well he's living in brooklyn now and uh he's got two jobs to to pay his bills and um but yeah it was just in the 80s it was the time when you could be poor and you could still have a pretty good. good pretty good standard of living and um I mean, so long as you weren't a drug addict or like, you know, as long as you didn't have to pay for expensive drugs. Uh, My only drug (laughs) at that time was coffee. So, well, I I want
1: to, I want to come back to uh, New York because I'm sure like we're about to go into the next phase of RBW, but I'm going to, I'm going to pause this here for a moment and um, let people know. So you're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I'll be right back.
0: I see you A fluorescent flash A moment of weakness I see you your mask in the tricks of your wine glass we're sudden strangers whoa when the truth gets told to me yeah we're strangers suddenly accidentally
1: You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. I'm here with RBW, Robert Burke Warren. We were talking about RuPaul. We were talking about Todd. We are talking about New Wave. We were talking about uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. We are talking about New York. Um, there's a lot, and I feel like we don't have nearly enough time to go as deep as I would like on each one of those topics. So instead, I think, let's continue on with your career. At this point, you've left uh, Wee Wee Pole. Um You're now entrenched in New York. Um, or you had moved, or had you moved to Georgia at this point?
2: No, no, no. I was uh, I, I I grew up in Georgia, but I had moved right. to, to I right. moved, You'd to, moved uh, to New York at this point. That's right. I I, I I first moved to Athens. That was sort of my launch pad. I was taxiing to to a life of independence, and right. um and I had an opportunity. Uh, someone I knew who lived in New York said I could be a roommate. Which turned out to be a disaster, but I didn't know that at the time. But uh, but uh, I really wanted to live in New York, and sure. uh, I was just—I don't know—I was drawn. I was drawn to the city, really powerfully drawn to the city, and um, and I loved it. I still love it, um, but I, I haven't lived there in 20 years. But I live not too far away, and uh, I loved it. And so I—I um, I did. I moved there. I lived in Athens for almost a year and then, yeah, I moved to to New York in 19, February 1st, 1985. And um, within a few months, I had found a band. And, uh, and then I was just playing in bands as much as possible and I got jobs to pay my bills, mostly working in yeah. the bars. I became a bartender, uh, I worked at a copy store. I was painting fire escapes for a while. I was apartment cleaning. Um, what else did I do? <laughs> I did a lot. I, I, I was only a waiter for one night and I got fired. I was a terrible waiter, <laughs> but, I was a good, but I was a good, I was a good bartender though. And, um, good. and that was cash, cash on yeah. the barrel head. That was uh tax free money at the, in those days. Um, right. so I was doing that and, um, yeah, that was the first two years I was in New York. I was just kind of settling into, uh, living
1: during, during that during that time while during that time while you were there in New York so you had shifted were you st- were you now playing the guitar as well as the bass or were you strictly still just more of a bass player
2: i was still primarily a bass player i could play guitar and i, sure. I could play gu- i started yeah. i picked up a guitar when i was about 15 years old and i could play i could hold my own as a rhythm guitar player but um uh and i could you know i could carry on by the campfire and all that stuff you know sure. I was, but but um but I was primarily a bass player, and um, and but I, uh, yeah, I was mainly I was, that was my thing, and um, and yeah, so I was yeah I was in I was a, bass player, of among many bass players in sure. <laughs> in uh, in the East Village, and um, but I, I got I was very lucky I got in a band that was that that, that toured that took me to Hawaii and california and and then i got in the flesh tones which was uh i i auditioned for them in 86 yeah late 86 uh they were looking for a bass player and they had a tour of europe planned they had a new album coming out and um they had been together at that point a decade and they were all a, a decade or more older than me i was 22 at the time and um and yeah, they—I met them because I played in this festival called Wigstock, which was a—it uh, it went on for for years. But it started in Tompkins Square Park in the East Village, and um, Lady Bunny, who is a, yep, a yep. contemporary of RuPaul's, Lady yep. Bunny, who's also from Atlanta. Um, hired me to to play in a band to back up some drag queens rather than have them perform to tapes and so we 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 did that and um the flesh Owners saw me there and within a month or two um they came to me and they were like you know you want to audition for our band you do you want to tour europe and quit bartending <laughs> <It's>
0: like <laughs> yeah man that sounds like a great idea, and so, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so,
2: and our first, so I got the gig. Long story short, I got the gig, and um, and our first gig, uh, I have to think about this for a second. No, our first gig was at Colgate University. We played some. They were what was then known as the college circuit, which was, was this pretty uh, lively and supportive, nurturing scene where a lot of bands. That's where REM came up through the college sure. circuit, yep. and. Uh, um, and we were, that's how we made our bread and butter was, was, was playing clubs and colleges and, um, yeah. all over the place. And it was, it was a thrill. And, um, and then within a few weeks of joining the band, they said, okay, well, we have a tour booked in the spring and our first date is, uh, we're going to open for James Brown at, uh, this, uh, arena. <laughs> um, and uh and i said okay great fantastic <laughs> so that was and but that was that was a it, it was an interesting gig nobody that was at that gig was really interested in seeing us but then we um as a matter of fact someone threw a, str- threw a straight razor on the stage which missed me whoa by just a few instances. yeah when i say they were not <laughs> interested in seeing us I mean, yeah, they actively. were there They were it was, He was James Brown was Had just uh, Was having a bit of a comeback At that time Because Living in America Which I think was the Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Rocky 4? Rocky 3?
1: Rocky uh, I think Living it was Rocky
2: 4 Yeah, um, it
1: was Rocky 4 Because that's when he goes to Russia To fight right. Ivan Drago
2: Exactly Very, well,
1: very patriotic film well,
2: well done With the trivia there right, let's Thank see. you, thank that, you the, um, um, <laughs> Yes So but that was a big hit and he was riding that and uh yeah. but uh but anyway so anyone who's going to go to an arena i think it was the bear sea if i remember correctly b-e-r-c-y um they don't really want to see the flesh you know, a bunch of a bunch of white guys from new york called the <laughs> yeah. flesh tones all right frank, f- frankly and <laughs> uh and sure enough a straight razor goes flying by my head while we're playing i'm like all right Let's, let's let's go to the provinces, please. And so that's what yeah. we did. We loaded up in a van, and so that gig was really fun for for a while. For about two years, they were um, again. I was the bass player, and um, yeah. and did some singing, but mostly bass playing. And um, and they were just. We went everywhere. We went France, hugely popular in France, Spain, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, Greece, Martinique uh, I think, I think that's about it. But, um, yeah, but they, since then, you know, they, since then they've, they've, they play Scandinavia quite a lot. Sure. Yeah. uh, But, um, so that was just a a wonderful experience for me. I was on the road. I was, I, I, I quit my day job and I was, uh, and that's where I met my wife. She was in a band that was, um, opening for us. That was kind of the the sister band to the Flesh Tones. There were two women in that band. Oh, it's an all-girl punk polka band what? called Yeah. <laughs> called, called, what? Yeah, they they were they were called Das Lines, and they dressed <laughs> like they dressed kind of like uh, beer, like sexy beer hall girls. Oh, sure. Uh, okay. And uh, with really big hats, and like uh, <laughs> the lead singer had a bustier, and she had like big. Like pretzels on on the her breasts and uh, yeah, and um, they were really fun, really cute, and um, yeah, that's where I met Holly George, uh, who became my girlfriend soon thereafter, and um, they uh, yeah so and then I quit that band. I I got kind of tired of of the uh, I guess got tired of uh, it, there was a lot of personality conflicts in the band and uh yeah and i wanted to do other things i knew that if i was going to stay in that band i was just going to be the bass player and um and it was uh i i I just had this i i wanted to do other things i wanted to have my own band yeah Uh, and and it was it was very dysfunctional you know (laughs) these guys (laughs) it's a very dysfunctional uh, I mean they're still together god bless them and, and they still yeah. play and they still work and they're they are the greatest live band I have ever played in and will oh, ever awesome. play in they were when we when we were on it was it was we were a well-oiled machine and there are videos of my time with the Flesh Jones which I'll also send you a link to Yeah please do uh that uh there was there's some times when we played some gigs where, uh, you know, I, I know that the people that saw us are still talking about those gigs. Yeah. it was amazing. It was an incredible. The uh, Peter Zaremba is is a is a, an incredible frontman, and yeah. Um, but yeah, they also had that synergy that a great band has, where they're greater than the sum of their parts. Right. And um, and anyway having said all that it was it was time for me to after about two almost two years it was it was time for me to go and uh by that time holly and i were engaged and uh we were living together and i sensed a new chapter of my life beginning at that time i was 23. is that right yeah 23 just before i turned 24. i joined the flesh Jones at 21 actually okay and uh and i left them when i was 23. yeah And it was, I felt like my my sort of my my grad school, my rock and roll grad school had come to an end and I needed to matriculate to something else. (laughs) And so that's what I did. And um, yeah, and then I started working on my guitar playing and uh, right around then and just really woodshedding on that and trying to get better at that and forming bands and writing songs, writing a ton of songs. And that's when I really wanted to... I mean, one of the reasons I left The Flash Shones is, is, is I really f- wanted to become a songwriter. I had written some songs at that point. Yeah. I would written a few songs, a handful of songs. No songs that I would want to play for you now, you know? And <laughs> they're just <laughs> – I was really trying to become a songwriter. It took much longer to become – to write a song that I was proud of, that I would still yeah. play for you in the year – 2022 um but that took years took years and um and it was you know during that time i I started getting into acting as well and going i had been a teenage actor you know and uh, i got I, i went back into that i started getting cast and things and uh and then i went to england and i got cast as buddy holly in the buddy holly story and I went to England for a year to do that when I was 29, and that was a great gig, very lucrative. And uh, I was in the West End, and in the theater that the show was in is now home to a little musical called Hamilton. Uh, ah, but uh, may have heard of yeah. it. Yeah, yes, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you've <maybe> heard <laughs> it. Yeah, so that was you know that was a uh, that was a uh, that was another big deal uh in my life and um but yeah i did that for a year i was buddy holly on stage in a jukebox musical what we what we now call the jukebox musical for a a year um it was a great experience and it really honed my chops as a guitar player and also because i had to play guitar and sing 17 songs and act in this show uh, which was about three hours long uh, multiple times over the course of a week and um Yeah, then I moved back to New York, and it was again time to hunker down and yeah. And I I went back to song. I came back to songwriting. I had to really kind of leave and get consumed by this other activity before I realized it took that to make me realize that uh, that I wanted to the the song. The the songwriting urge was still really powerful in me, and um, and actually Holly sent a cassette of my songs to Roseanne Cash, who was doing a, um, Roseanne Cash was doing a songwriting workshop at uh, this place called the Omega Institute, which is in uh, upstate New York, not far from where I live now. And to get into the workshop, you had to audition. And she didn't tell me, she didn't tell me that she was doing this, Um, she just sent the cassette to the Omega to Roseanne Care of the Omega Institute, and then I got in. And um, she and I, Roseanne and I, became friends. And um, she uh, she really was, uh, you know, she really encouraged me to to, to write songs. She's like, "You're you're a writer." She said, "You're a writer, yeah. and you need to hunker down and do more of this." And she also encouraged my prose writing as well. And um, and that is. Uh, kind of, uh, kind of like a mentor, you know, yeah. but also it's uh, she was just a really generous friend, and uh still is and and we've we've stayed in touch all these years but um uh, yeah, that was an integral part of my development of my just as an as an artist uh was was that relationship, which never would have happened had Holly not sent that cassette in, yeah and uh. So yeah, that's that's where I'm sort of coming back to to songwriting. Yeah.
1: I there's so much goodness. What I what I find really interesting is your journey of. I want I want to I'm drawn to this specific instrument, the bass, right? And I'm I hear it. I'm excited to learn more about it. I'm I'm in different bands. We're doing our own songs. Um, I'm moving and growing. And the whole time, you are a very important piece in a lot of these different groups. And then you get to a point where you've left these different groups. You're going, and now you are the front man. You are here in this musical, in this show, performing artistry of a whole different level. And now you're starting to unlock this entire other aspect of yourself as a performer, as a musician, as an artist, you come back. Now you're starting to write. You're starting to really develop that aspect that has been tucked away, sort of marinating in the background as it were. And then now it's coming full force and you're starting to put pieces out there. And now we get to the point where you've written, you're writing quite a bit. And then now you've also gotten several books out as well. I know that's like, that's that's a large time period, huh. just condensing it down to a few sentences. Uh, but I, it's fascinating. I often see people saying, oh, I knew I was writing, I was doing this, you know, I was doing all this before I could even pick up an instrument, or maybe shortly after. And it's interesting to me to have the, not the opposite, but a different path, a different experience of this is my engagement with music and now i've discovered this whole uh, this whole additional lens of my artistry that is manifesting itself at this time with these circumstances and in this way i think it's beautiful in in so many ways i love
2: it well thanks i appreciate that i um i yeah i, I part of what happened i mean i was i was always just a song nut song guy yeah, yeah. and um you know, and and uh, I really, really enjoyed being in a great rock and roll band. Yeah. Um, and, um, but uh, we were, we were on the road and we were in New Jersey somewhere, um, playing a gig in, in New Jersey somewhere, as one does. And then between soundcheck and the gig, there was this, there was always this period of time where, you know, just a huge, several hours where you got to kill time. Yeah. And I wandered over to this cafe and, um, and I went in and they had tele, the television was on and it was on the public, like PBS, you know, mm-hmm. and there was a, a, a PBS special about Leonard Cohen on the, you know, on the, on the, on yeah. the tube there. And I sat there and I just drank my coffee and just watched this thing. And I knew who Leonard Cohen was. Sure. And, um, and... Uh, Holly had several albums by him, and, uh, she had this incredible LP collection, um, and, which we still have, actually, and, um, but, uh, anyway, I just remember being transfixed by him, and I'm like, what is he doing up there, you know, and it was, it was right around the time I'm Your Man came out, and, um, so, uh, he was just captivating this audience, uh, with song. And um, I had seen other bands do that yeah. or other artists do that. I remember Jonathan Richmond, we played on a bill with Jonathan Richmond uh, at Duke University. And he just, and this was, you know, we were a five piece band, Take No Prisoners, you know, Lock Up Your Daughters. We're coming through town. And, um, and Jonathan Richmond showed up with just an amp and a guitar and just went out there and sang songs and we opened for him and uh and it was mesmerizing he was he was and still is just this mesmerizing performer and I was like what must that feel like to 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 be able to do that without all the bells and whistles and the and the flashlights and the flashy lights the flashlights the flashy lights and the, and the, and the, and the flash pots and all that stuff. But, but you know, but just without the volume, uh, what must that feel like? And that curiosity would not let me go, uh, of how, how, what, what must that feel like to be able to do that? And so that's what I was working towards. So that was a, that was a pivotal moment for me in the flesh. And I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that in this band. Um, and, um, and I don't really think I can endure another long van ride with these guys <laughs> across the Midwest. Right. Right. When everybody is really, really hung over. Or, you know. I don't know if I really don't know if it's worth it to me. So sorry, right. yeah, I said, screw this, I'm out of here. And um and so that was that was yeah, where I was where I was going and and, and then I drifted away from that and then I came back to it. It just wouldn't let me go. You know, yeah. and uh, and and I just kept at it, and I'm still, you know, I've, I've I've, not not to jump ahead too far, but I mean, I I have invested a lot of my creative energy into books uh, of late, um, but uh, but yeah, I will always be a, a songwriter, where the the combination of the words and the music, to, to try and create a a, a piece that will that works that flies yeah. you know and that does what you wanted to do that transports a, a listener and and me performer and listener sort of transports them away from this and to the that ineffable place i mean that's the goal and um, yeah. and i've i've been able to do that a few times i've been able to do that i can still do that um sometimes and uh <laughs> you know it's not it's not a, it's not a, it's not a guarantee that that's always the magic is always going to happen. But but it has happened enough to keep me interested and to keep me connected to the source. Um, and so that that's what that that's always pulling me in. I was like, and I'm a performer is the thing. I I I, I I'm a writer, and I can do the work of sitting down and writing whether it's a book or a a long story or a a piece for a magazine or something like that. I can do the work of sitting. It's solitary work and editing. It's lonely work. But I I know enough about myself now to know that at some point, sooner than later, I'm gonna have to get up and perform in front of people and connect in that way as well. And uh, songs are a good way to do that. And um, I was just doing that a couple of nights ago, actually. (laughs) <laughs> and and uh and we'll be doing it again um soon you know i have I've, I've a busy i have a busy autumn coming up
1: yes you do and we'll talk about that here in just a moment so you're listening to after the encore i'm your host joe shaw and we'll be right back after this
0: you look good in the rain you look good in the rain beneath the crying clouds you're gonna make me proud you look good in the rain you look good in the waves you look good in the you fight against the tide, and I'll be by your side. You look good in the ways.
1: Welcome back to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. I'm here with Robert Burke Warren, and we've gone through your career. And now, let's talk some Johnny Cash. Uh, I feel like, to some people, they're going to be like, oh, wait a minute, what? I completely <laughs> forgot we were talking about Cash on Cash. What is this? What, what, what's going on? We're talking about the man in black. Yes, don't be hurt. If you feel like you got hit what? by a great ball of fire, Wait, you're not in Folsom City, What We're talking about Johnny Dude. Cash. <laughs> just do, okay. just doing some song All title right. play. Um. <laughs> All right, so before we before we dive in, let's start at the beginning. How did you so I know that uh, you mentioned uh, briefly that it was sort of your pandemic project, but how did how did you even approach or get approached to write this book on Johnny Cash?
2: Well, let this be a lesson to uh, anyone that is. Uh, I mean, I I asked. I sent him a proposal. I mean, yeah. I, I've done a lot of that in my life. I mean, I've i you know we could do a whole podcast on the on the the uh, just the, the the rejections that I've gotten from asking when people said no. You know, whether it's a gig or a book idea or a book I've written that I want to get published or a band yeah. that I want to join or whatever, rejection is. You know, everybody. You know what, you love it. But it's like, <laughs> so there's, but you know, you still just have to, you know, put your ass in the chair and just do the work and just keep doing it, you know. And, and, uh, but what happened was, um, I mean, I've been a, a you know, like a Roseanne friend of mine, but even aside from that, um, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan and have been for a long time. And, uh, um, uh, Chicago Review Press, this uh, yeah. publisher, they 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 put out a lot of books, and they have a series called Musicians in Their Own Words, and a friend of Holly's and mine named Ashley Kahn, uh, he's a Grammy-winning writer. He writes a lot for the New York Times. He's, uh, God, he's written he's written a lot of a, a lot of really great music books, particularly about jazz. He's he's in in jazz circles. He's he is well known, and um, he's a great guy. And he had written a book for Chicago Review Press called "Harrison on Harrison," and it mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. the it was George Harrison re- interviews uh, and features um, chronologically, you know, going all the way back to early BBC interviews transcribed up until just before he passed away. You know, covering this arc of this incredible life. And uh, he sent us a copy of Harrison on Harrison in the early days. I believe it was in the early days of COVID. He sent it to us, and um, and I read it, and I was really, you know, I was really into it. It was really uh, well done and and fascinating to read uh, an artist in their own words, and not an artist who is like writing a memoir. Yeah, but an artist who over, especially over the course of of, of, of of a career. Yeah. and uh where you get to see how they answered questions when they were in their 20s as opposed to how right. they answered questions when they were in their 50s yep and um and how they talked about themselves and anyway the whole thing was i was i thought it was uh it was really not the usual i'm usually a fiction guy i don't read a lot of non-fiction but yeah um but uh i i, I then i went on the website i got curious again it was it was early covid days and i was homebound and um and I checked out the Chicago Review Press website and I saw that they had done like, I think 20 something books in this series. It was, they had Cobain on Cobain, uh, Cohen, Leonard Cohen on Leonard Cohen, Dylan on Dylan, uh, Judy Garland on Judy Garland, wow, uh, the, the Clash on the Clash, just on down the line. There's a lot. And, um, and I was kind of surprised to see that there was no cash on cash because I knew enough about Johnny Cash to know that he was, he was a, uh, he was quite an interview subject over the years. He was, he, he was, he was a quote machine, uh, fiercely yeah. intelligent, uh, raconteur. Like, really, was known for giving good interview, you know. And uh, and yet there was no cash on cash. So I just had an impulse, which I followed. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I reached out to Ashley. I was like, Ashley, there's no cash on cash. He's like, oh, well, why don't you write a proposal and pitch it to them? And I was like, really? Can it be that easy? <laughs> and, and he said, just, you know, write a proposal, see how it goes. And, uh, well, what I did first was I wrote to his editor and I was like, so there's no cash on cash. What's up with that? There are some words yeah. to that effect. And, yeah. um, and, and she said, same thing he did. She said, why don't you put together a proposal and we'll see how it goes. So long story short, I wrote that proposal. And again, I've written a book proposal before for a book sure. that did not get published. And the book yeah. proposal that I wrote, and the book proposals that my wife writes for her, she's a biographer. She's She wrote a biography of Janis Joplin. She wrote a biography of Gene Autry. She wrote a biography of Alex Chilton. And her book proposals are really they're like 30, 40, 50 pages. Wow. And I've seen other book proposals as well. And I wrote a book proposal. Anyway, so my book proposal for cash on cash was two pages long. And uh and I was like I, I knew you know, I asked Ashley, like, okay, what what's the deal here? What do they what will they give you to write this book, you know? Yeah. And he told me and I was like, Well that's not a hell of a lot of money, is it? And he was like, <laughs> No, it's not, but it's good work and um yeah. it's fun. And he said, you know, you should go for it. And I did, and they they said, "Okay, let's do this." And so they're <laughs> like, "They're like, okay, it's due in, uh, it's due. What was my due date? It's due in Nov- November of twenty twenty one. It's due." Okay. And uh, and I said, "Okay, now what?" And they like, okay. and So that was it. And so then I had to go through the process of, and again, Ashley was very helpful in this way. And I was like, "So okay, so I need to find, I need to find uh, pieces about Johnny Cash that are uh, that are not available on the internet, yeah. that uh, that are interesting, that have something." And, and what I found, which was fascinating to me, was uh, first of all, I knew how successful the American recordings stuff was, yep. but I didn't realize really quite how influential. The combo of that work and James Mangold's "I, wa- I Walk the Line" the movie, yeah. biopic, two thousand five biopic, how those two things, um, both of which, the well the "Hurt" video, which is the "Hurt" video and and the song "Hurt," is the most successful single of Johnny Cash's entire career. Wow. It's, like, been streamed almost half a billion times on Spotify. Wow. And uh, I think the next song down from that is I Walk the Line. It was is, uh, Ring of Fire, yes. which is something like, I don't know, 300,000 times or, 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 or 300 million times. Excuse me. 300 yeah. million times. <laughs> That's anyway, wild. And, uh, yeah, and then... Uh, and the video, of course, which is an incredible piece of work, uh, yeah. has, uh, last I checked, I think it was about 160 million views on YouTube. Uh, but anyway, the point, though, is, is that these things, which are dark and beautiful, but dark, very dark, uh, have really colored the general public's idea of who Johnny Cash was. I mean, it was not it was not rick rubin's intention and it wasn't james mangold's intention to to do that i don't think they just created right. really great work i mean i'm not really a big fan of walk the line the movie um i know a lot of people really love it but but uh i you know i, I know too much and i'm like well why sure. didn't they do this that and the other and and you know roseanne hates it and uh so uh but um has made no bones about that either you know she's like that's not my dad that's i believe the quote she gave was watching that movie was like having a root canal without anesthetic that was her assessment of the movie (laughs) so it's like okay uh tell us how you really feel you know but uh but i get it you know i under i get it and i well i mean i get it so much as like you know uh he was so much more than than that you know he was of course he had epic struggles and drug problems and just and the drug problems by the way in my research were even deeper and more harrowing and just miraculous that he lived beyond the 60s much less into the 90s 2000s it's just i mean it'll blow your mind but uh but aside from that and you know i mean if it bleeds it leads as they say in journalism yeah and uh but when i was doing my research and i was finding all these interviews from the mainly from the from the 70s there aren't a lot of interviews in the 60s because the you know the the counterculture hadn't really uh, crawdaddy magazine and rolling stone magazine changed everything prior to those two publications there no magazine was was going to do a profile of any Popular entertainer no magazine was going to do like an in-depth long-form interview with the Beatles with the Rolling yeah. Stones with Jimi Hendrix with anybody there's there's so few From the early mid 60s and then quite suddenly with Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy in the late 60s all of that changes and Then those become successful ventures and then and only then do Life Magazine and Look Magazine and Time Magazine that start coming around and saying, "Oh, well, maybe we should, maybe we should do an in-depth interview of this of this artist of Bob Dylan. I wonder what Bob Dylan thinks about this." You know, it's like yeah, yeah. So, but it took that. But so the point though is that in '70s, there's a lot of really great Johnny Cash interviews from the '70s and um, uh, and the '80s, and he was a great interview and. Um, And I found that uh, I went into the archives of the Country Music Hall of Fame, which was an amazing experience. Um, And I just did a lot of detective work tracking these things down and then licensing them, which was, you know, uh, cost a a little bit of money, but not too much. And it was well worth it. I got some really good deals. And Roseanne had written a couple of pieces about her dad, which she licensed to me, which are really great and unavailable anywhere else. But the the man that comes across when you read him talking about himself over the years, over the decades, is a a funny, sweet, you know, guy, you know, who, who, and also just incredible, incredible storyteller. Like, the guy that helped him write his second memoir, uh, which was just called Cash, which came out in the 90s, yeah. Um, he said that uh, Johnny Cash spoke in prose. He was like his this this guy's job was to um, was to first of all to get Johnny Cash to sit still long enough to tell him stories um, about <laughs> about his life and um, and Johnny Cash was just super busy. He was always on the road. He always had a, a bunch of things going on. He really really lived life to the hilt. Um, but he, uh, he said that Johnny Cash would open his mouth and, and this guy would hit record. And when he would sit down later with the transcriptions, he had very little work to do. He was like, the man speaks in beautiful prose, which is kind of like a preacher. I mean, in another, in another age, I mean, he was, he was a very religious man and he, you know, he, he could have been a preacher, Patrick Carr, that's the guy's name, the writer's name, who who did okay. that book with him. Great guy. He lives in Florida now. Um but yeah, the uh but anyway I found I found a, a man who was a lot more colorful and had a lot more dimensions to him than the character who comes across in both Walk the Line and in the Rick Rubin recordings. And um which is not to diminish either one of those pieces of work, you know. Uh yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the, um, and Johnny Cash himself in one of the interviews that I found in 2002, he, he said, he said, look, it's, he took some responsibility for, for his image and this kind of, he said that he looked back, and that he had pigeonholed himself a lot mm. and allowed himself to be pigeonholed by the people who were, whose job it was to sell his product, you know, his yeah. work. Um, but he said yeah, he said there's a bitterness there and a coldness there. The man in black, the outlaw preacher, the badass, the out you know, this, that and the other. He's like, you know, I'm a happy man. This is like yeah. you know, I'm I'm a lot right. happier than people think. And um but you know, it was it, it, he was in his twilight time and he he uh he was looking back over his life and thinking, wow, you know, a lot of people think I'm this Crazed, gun-toting badass—you know—who's who's, who, who's uh, a drug addict, you know—and there's so much more there, you know. Yeah. He was. He was. He, there was a lot more to him. And my hope is with my book that that people just get a more, uh, more well-rounded. Again, it's like you read him actually speaking. You read him actually talking to these interviewers, you know, talking about politics, talking about religion, talking about seventies he stopped making interesting music with a couple of exceptions through a lot of the seventies but what he was doing during that time it turns out was educating himself and doing a lot of bible study and reading and you know he was very he was very driven to uh to to go out of his comfort zone quite a lot creatively yeah. so uh so that that uh, that comes through that comes through okay. in these interviews, and I was very happy to find the things that I found. So it's putting them all together and then I write intros to them and, yeah. uh, and, I, wrote, and I wrote an introduction to the book and uh, and I interviewed the people who interviewed him to get an idea of what mm-hmm. what was what was, that, what was going on at that time? you know who was who was this guy? What was it like going to the house of cash? What was it like yeah. going to his house in Hendersonville and hanging out with him him in June? Yeah. But uh, but it, it, next year is the twentieth anniversary of his passing, which is unbelievable. But um, wow. and in that time, because he let, he went out with such an incredible bang with the American recording stuff, um, in that time, we've gotten social media, we've gotten YouTube. Uh, you know, the world in the last twenty years has it, it's kind of dizzying to think how much it's changed but also the way people get their information has radically changed and um and so they have a very reductive view of who this artist was and my hope is that the cash on cash will for whoever reads it will broaden that a bit you know do do right by johnny
1: i like that you know that's a that's a good way of putting it i think in in our rush as a society, in our rush to consume so much so fast, we boil people down to one to two things in an effort to quickly understand it and move on to the next thing. And if people boil Johnny Cash down to two things, you're right. It's down to hurt. It's down to walk the line. And there's right. you know varying degrees there, but that's it. Whereas, if you take the time to understand the nuance that we all have, we all have nuance in our lives, but the the nuance of Johnny Cash by reading this book and getting to read through his humor, his religion, his struggles, his uh, comedy, like all of these different aspects which made him such a unique individual, you'll get a lot out of it. Um, As we're wrapping up, I want to know, what was um what was maybe one thing that you discovered about johnny throughout this there's a lot that you obviously discovered but one thing that was re- that really surprised you about johnny cash
2: oh that's a good question um uh one thing that really let me think about that well i mean i had i had heard you know i had heard that he was a, uh, that he was a sweetheart um but um Mm -hmm. just to just to see it you know in the uh, just to see it in on the page just you know what what a what a generous soul he was and um and what a what an influential artist (laughs) he was i i I really think bob dylan got a lot from johnny cash and bob dylan has i mean that's not a no news flash. Bob Dylan has said that himself. But, um, but yeah, the, uh, that, that's been a a huge thing. Um, where, uh, yeah, but, but his art, the depth of his artistry and especially his songwriting, like the early stuff, like up through, he, he did write good songs after the sixties, but he had an incredible run, um, as a, as a songwriter. And, um, I think I I learned, I, I learned that he was even greater of an artist and an even more influential artist than I had ever thought. But also, I learned too that he had, um, he was not such a yeah uh, he was not su- such a maverick as 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 people right. think. And, and when I say that, I mean that he had a lot of help, and he had, he was surrounded by really strong women. He was drawn right. to to strong women. His mom was a strong woman. Uh, June was certainly a strong woman, um, and uh, that that he really drew a lot from a lot of strength from these strong women in his life. That was that was something that I didn't really know the depth of, particularly. And his daughters, you know, he he he, uh, and here's the thing too. Is a, is a story of forgiveness. There's an incredible thread of forgiveness through his story. And it's um, in that he was forgiven by so many people who he really really did wrong yeah. uh, in various ways. and it, but he also did a lot of forgiving of 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 other people. It's just there's this, there's people that stay in his life. Um, all throughout, that are—it's a remark. We did just like you know, yes. just it, it's inc- it's incredible that people could can do that. It's inspir—it's an inspirational, um, and uh, that, that that they will look at they will willfully. And you have to ask yourself. And, and again, this has been a, a, a recurring right. theme in my own work. And I said, well, what is it what does it mean? What does forgiveness mean? You have to ask yourself, what does that word mean? And it's it's like you can't distill it down into just like, oh, it just means just walking away if you forgive and forget. That's not what it is. It's like, do you have the capacity to to mm-hmm. to view someone yeah. or to have someone in your life not be reduced to their worst yes. actions? Like, is they is does their character encompass? A broader vista, uh, right. of j- rather than this horrible thing they said or these horrible things that they said and did, like is is does that define them? Are you going to let that define them? I mean, you can let that define them. That's a choice that you make. But is there enough there in other areas within you and within them? Which means, you know, there's people in my life that I can't forgive and won't forgive. Right. So it's not like it's not like you're a better person to uh yeah. or a, you know it's not a judgment call on on whether or not you can forgive someone but but when you can do it and when he did it and it was done yeah. for him you you think well what's going on here you know why right. why is this person staying in his life or why is why is why is he allowing himself to be in this other person's life or well, whatever you know it's because they don't because they don't let these horrible things define themselves. So, so there's so much of that in his story, and uh, yeah. and it's beautiful mm. to see. I mean, when he died, you know, he had he had made a lot of he'd done a lot of repair work. He had spent a lot, a lot of energy repairing absolutely. relationships in his life, and. Uh, yeah, absolutely and that's inspirational to see that it can be done you know and uh so that that was something that I learned too I I would not have gone into it with, with I did not go into it with that knowledge and um so yeah there's a there's that
1: I like it this this is thank you for sharing that the the book is cash on cash We've got links in the show notes for you to go purchase it right now. We've got some wonderful musical links if you want to go listen to Robert Burke Warren's stuff. This has been an incredible journey, Robert. I, I, I think you truly may be the most interesting man alive. In <laughs> truly. Um, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: Uh, well, let's see. I have an Instagram account, which is the real rbw at Instagram. And Robert Burkhorn on Facebook, and uh, there's even a Cash on Cash interviews and encounters with Johnny Cash Facebook page, and um, those are good. Uh, I don't tweet a hell of a lot these days, um, but uh, but that's good. Those are those are those are good places to to find me for now. Oh, and I have a Substack actually um, where I do some some writing on there. And my sub, sub, sub stack is Robert Burke Warren show folk. Robert Burke Warren colon, show folk. And that's perfect. That
1: should cover it. I love it. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's yeah, been, it's been, an been really, utter delight.
2: Thank you. It's been really fun. Thank you.
1: No problem. Listeners, you've been listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. And here to play us out one last time is Robert Burke Warren.
0: Haley played Magenta in the floor show at the silver screen Ken played Frank in six inch heels, oh what a scene Yeah, but Todd stole the show as the scorned sidekick His rip rap was electric, it was dark magic Your movie made it happen, so thank you Richard O'Brien I was taken in by the new wave Queer Underground In my mullet and my polyester suit I love to hang around I love the broody soft boys and the whip smart girls Country punks and runaways of Todd's New World You brought them all together, so thank you Richard O'Brien Come check me out in the Floor Show, my old friend It's been so long I wanna see you again I trust you not to freak out when I'm kissing these men Oh no, I'm feeling mighty real the truth now i know why the car came on an autumn night when we fight the fear with friendship and fluorescent light you brought us back together so thank you richard o'brien